Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1272. Interview number 11 with Jim Diogenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on November 16th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my great pleasure and my great privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim Diogenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, that we parsed in 25 one-hour interviews back in 2018 and 2019, and more recently, the book JFK Revisited, which in turn is taken from the recent Oliver Stone documentary called JFK Revisited, and Jim was selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay. Jim, welcome back once again to our airways. Nice to be here. Thank you, Dave. We are, I guess, just, it's now six days from the anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. This, I guess, will be a, uh, a numerologist's dream, 11-22-22. And oh, that, thought, that, you know, I didn't think of it that way. That's pretty clever. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it certainly, if one were inclined in that direction, it would, uh, I think lead one to, uh, be, uh, observant in that regard. I thought that we would initiate the discussion with a couple of quotes from the book JFK Revisited. And by the way, that book not only has the transcript of the two-hour version of the documentary called JFK Revisited, but also the four-hour version called JFK Destiny Betrayed, obviously a nod to your book, and then has interviews, supplemental interviews, which overlap the first two documentaries. And on page 205, there is a quote from Jim Gawkenauer. Is it Pronounce Gokhenauer or Goshenauer? Uh, yeah, you can pronounce it either way. Oh, okay. He was a graduate student in the Pacific Northwest, and he got to interact with Elmer Moore, who was a Secret Service agent whom, as we have seen and as we may uh, come back to, was requisitioned to pressure Dr. Charles Crenshaw, no, not, not, uh, but, uh, Malcolm Perry, I believe it was, who had done the tracheotomy on President Kennedy, and he was uh, kept up during the evening by, among others, Mr. Moore, who was pressuring him to change his testimony that uh, the wound in Kennedy's throat over which he performed the tracheotomy was an entrance wound. And Jim Garfenauer, on page 205, notes the following. Moore leaned back in his big, comfortable leather chair and said, Who killed Jack Kennedy? Then he said, Well, I'll tell you who didn't with 100% certainty. It wasn't the Russians, unquote. And my head is starting to swim. I wanted to break in right at that point. But then he said, quote, I'll tell you why. JFK was the Russian's boy. He was giving away everything he could. That man, for all intents and purposes, dare I say it? Jim, I will say it. JFK was a traitor, unquote. You know, I, I toss this in, Jim, because I think what Elmer Moore was expressing was 
a feeling that ran throughout much, perhaps most, of the decisive elements in the national security establishment. And I think when we look at the official version, faults in every respect, the reason why that dog did indeed hunt under the circumstances is precisely because of the opinion expressed by Elmer Moore. Uh, you know something? I'm really glad you decided to use that quote uh, for more than one reason. Uh, but it really, as you just said, I believe, and obviously you believe, that it's illustrative of the way many people felt in what we call the Mike, you know, the military-industrial complex, all right, that they really believed that Kennedy's attempt to establish some kind of rapprochement with Moscow was the equivalent of being a traitor. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to think of, but that was, that, you know, we know that people like LeMay felt like that. We know people like Lemnitzer, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, felt like that. You know, Elmer Moore felt like that because he came out and said it. All right. But I think, I think that's really a barometer of what JFK was up against. So I'm really glad you started it off with that. And there's something which I think will prove to be a useful jumping off point for our discussion of the ballistics and then getting over, uh, I'm tempted to say bleeding over, but that's a bad metaphor, into the medical evidence. And uh, we will be visiting, I hope, with uh, Gary, Dr. Gary Aguilar, who uh, features prominently in both the two and four-hour versions of the documentary. On page 225 of JFK Revisited, there is a quote from something that uh, author Josiah Thompson uncovered, and reading now from uh, the book, Josiah Thompson gave an important speech at the 2003 Duquesne University JFK Assassination Conference. He revealed that in a 1993 interview, O.P. Wright's widow, who also worked at Parkland Hospital, said that more than one nurse had approached her in the 24 hours after the assassination because they had found bullets on gurneys, uh, bullets plural and gurneys plural. Uh, You know, we, we, we spoke about Life magazine and their various machinations, both with the Supreme's film and that uh, remarkable cover of, uh, quote, Oswald, unquote, with the uh, rifle he allegedly used to kill Kennedy and the handgun he allegedly used to kill Officer Pippet. And in a sense, it looks like Parkland Hospital had become a different kind of magazine, not in the sense of periodical, but in the sense of an ammunition repository. (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. it, I think it gives us an idea of how the the, the magic bullet came to be. It it is, of course, one of many, many aspects of the official version that is absolutely 
absurd. But uh, I think it gives us some some uh, perspective. We'll come back to uh, is it OP right or OD right? No, it's 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 OP right, and okay. he was the director of personnel or security chief at Parkland Hospital in 1963. His widow, who we're quoting here, eventually became the head of nursing at Parkland Hospital. And at the time of that interview, that's what her position was. The interview itself was to give credit to words due. It was conducted by a guy named Wallace Milam, who was a very good researcher back in those days. And Tink Thompson was quoting from the interview that Wallace did with uh, with Wright's widow. Yes. Uh, it's just amazing. Bullets on various journeys. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because this will air on radio, I can't give you my candid (laughs) opinion because it it just, I I would, in all honesty, I would have to reach into the foulest backwaters of my vocabulary and the Mm -hmm. SEC would not green light that. Uh, Jim, we were speaking about the rifle and the many contradictory aspects of it and, uh, the, rifle that was found in the, quote, sniper's nest, unquote, and that uh, Dallas reporter Tom Allier noted had apparently been uh, altered by people who were uh, involved with the, quote, investigation, unquote. One thing we did not mention, I, I believe, and that is the lack of usable fingerprints on the rifle that uh, Oswald allegedly used. Oh, this is a very interesting story. And I'm glad you brought this up. In the film, we had Brian Edwards talk about it. And the reason I wanted him to talk about it, because he used to be a, uh, for 20 years, he was a police uh, investigator. He actually served at one time on a SWAT team. So he knows about this stuff. All right, here's here's the story. All right. The rifle is at the Dallas police headquarters. All right. And... On the first day, there was supposed to be a fingerprint test done on the rifle, okay? And the guy that um, who was their alleged expert on it was Lieutenant Day, all right? Well, what happened at the end of the 22nd, heading into midnight, is that the FBI wanted the major pieces of evidence that the Dallas police had so they could run their tests on it. The FBI lab is supposed to be the best in America. So that's why they wanted to do this. So Vincent Drain from the FBI comes in and he picks up the rifle from Lieutenant Day. Now, Vincent Drain later said that the Dallas police did not tell him anything about any kind of fingerprints or palm prints on the rifle. Nothing. Okay. So he just picked up the rifle and he brought it to the FBI headquarters uh, in Washington. Now, at the FBI headquarters in Washington, the man who conducted the print examination was a, a guy named Sebastian Latona. Sebastian Latona was not just the FBI's best man on fingerprints. 
He was America's best man on fingerprints. Why? Because he had written a pamphlet that was used by almost every major and mid-sized city in the United States. Robert Tannenbaum, the head of homicide in New York City, told me that you felt lucky to get Latona as a witness in your case for the simple reason that every prosecutor in the country wanted Latona on the stand for them. Okay, all right. So Sebastian Latona gets the rifle. He said, look, I tried everything, okay? We tried highlighting. We tried sidelighting. I brought in my own photographer. He brought in his own light system, okay? We did everything we could, and I then broke down the rifle into its individual parts, and we then lit and sidelighted and highlighted every individual part, Not only could I not find any usable prints, I couldn't even find any evidence that somebody had actually dusted the rifle and put and tried to draw fingerprints off it in the first place. Now, it doesn't get any more fatal to the official story than Sebastian Latona. Okay, and so everybody under the sun has tried who supports the official story has tried to go ahead and dodge the implications of that testimony. I'm sorry. And what the, what they did, for example, on PBS in 1993 and then on 2003 was just a disgrace. I don't even want to talk about how bad it was. All right. But this is what he said. Trust me, you can read it in the Warren Commission volumes yourself. You don't believe me. But that is what he said. So what happens? They went ahead and shipped him rifle back. And lo and behold, a few days later, the Dallas police found a palm print. Okay, now, Dave, I ask you, if Sebastian Latona worked all night on this thing, he couldn't find one single solitary print. The rifle gets shipped back to Dallas, okay, and suddenly, magic, they found the palm print. All right, who do you believe? Okay, I don't think there's any question about it, especially with the Dallas police history of all the violations of civil rights that they made, okay, and all the people who have now walked out free, okay, because of the Innocence Project. You know, I think that, if I remember correctly, more people have been let loose on prosecutory uh, abuses, okay, by the Innocence Project in the city of Dallas than not only every other city in the United States, but several states, okay? So that is what, that's what happened with this. We're supposed to believe that the best guy in the country somehow screwed up and this, you know, this fourth-rate Dallas police office, okay, somehow they found something that Sebastian Latona couldn't find. Now, now, I don't have to tell you why this gets more interesting, of course, do I? Because... At the mortuary where Lee Harvey Oswald was taken to, the guy running the mortuary, I think his name was Grudy, okay, he said that the FBI came in during the night when Oswald was lying in state, and to his best of his recollection, 
when he came back in after they left, Oswald had ink on his hands. Now, what do you, now is that about the worst story you can imagine? Okay. You know, it, it certainly is very suggestive. Another quote, and this is not in the book or the movie, but I think rather like Elmer Moore's disclosure to Jim Gartenauer or Goshenauer, I think we can perhaps read a much deeper subtext into the behavior of the uh, LA, uh, of the Dallas PD. Uh, one Dallas cop who was quoted said, we, we treated the Kennedy assassination just like it was a, another South Dallas N-word killing. Right. And I think, you know, given the high percentage of Dallas cops who were involved with the Ku Klux Klan and or the John Birch Society. Right. Uh, that, that, a, I think it's absolutely, that's absolutely correct, Dave. And the percentages are very high. Let's not forget what Bill Alexander said, one of the deputy district attorneys. He said words to the effect, you know, why should I care if John Kennedy got his bleep blasted off in Dallas? So what? <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. Um, let's just say Elmer Moore had a lot of company. One could perhaps uh, see that as a pun under the circumstances uh, we were talking about O.P. Wright, whose widow had been in charge of nursing at one point at Parkland, and she described uh, nurses finding bullets on their knees the evening of the assassination. O.P. Wright found the bullet, and I think that ultimately was, quote, identified, unquote, note the quotes as CE-399, the magic bullet, and yet he gave a very different account of the round that he saw. Explain what CE-399 was and what O.P. Wright found. All right. What happened is that O.P. Wright gave the bullet to the Secret Service, Secret Service gave it to the FBI, and then allegedly went to the FBI lab. Okay. Years later, Josiah Thompson who was writing his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, went to Parkland Hospital, and he wanted to talk to O.P. Wright, all right? And so he said, now, you, of course, remember this bullet that you gave the Secret Service. And he goes, of course. And he goes, have you seen CE-399, which is supposed to be the bullet that you gave to them? Have you seen it lately? And Have you seen pictures of it from the Warren Commission? And Wright said no. So Thompson took out a picture of CE-399, the alleged magic bullet, okay, that Wright was supposed to have turned in. And he And Wright sat there and he said, that's the bullet they said I gave them? And Thompson goes, yes. This is Commission Exhibit 399, the magic bullet. No. No. And so he opened his drawer and he took out a pointed bullet. CE 399 is a rounded bullet. Okay. All right. And he says, and then the difference is that 
a pointed bullet is usually what they call a hunting round. Okay. All right. He said, no, the bullet I gave them looked like this. It was shaped like this. All right. And I also believe that the bullet he took out was more lead colored, whereas the uh, magic bullet, of course, is copper coated. And Wright was very, very startled by this. And you, and you know, I hope you understand one of the reasons he didn't know what it looked like is because Arlen Specter didn't interview Wright. Do you believe that? Isn't that incredible? Okay. Well, it, it is in and of itself. And yet Arlen Specter and beyond that, the uh, Warren Commission personnel in general were quite effective in either altering or simply not having anything to do with witnesses and participants whose testimony would disprove the official version. Yeah, you're exactly correct. And he, and I'll say this, Spectre sure as heck knew what he was doing. He doesn't interview Cybert or O'Neill. He doesn't interview uh, O.P. Wright. Very smart guy. And O.P. Wright's background uh, was such that he knew what bullets were all about. Yes, correct. Because before he became the director of security at Parkland Hospital, he had worked in the sheriff's office for a number of years. So, yes, he was very experienced with weapons and and ammunition. In the film, uh, Jim, there is discussion of the lack of unanimity among Warren commissioners themselves, and one of the major elements of uh, disagreement involved uh, what we have uh, termed the magic bullet theory or the single bullet theory, uh, some of the dissenting commissioners and their points of difference. Uh, Richard Russell from Georgia, a senator, uh, he was disturbed at the very first meeting he went to, and then later, even talking to LBJ, he, <laughs> excuse me, he had some telling comments about uh, the single bullet hypothesis. Yes, that's exactly correct. All right, the I, one of the things that we worked on in the film was to try and show that the Warren Commission was not the unanimous body that it was depicted to be by the media. All right, there was a split in the commission. All right, and on the one side, you had Dulles, Jerry Ford, and John McCloy. And on the other side, you had Russell, John Sherman Cooper, and Hale Boggs. I, the way I refer to this as the former group, I call the Troika. The latter group, I called, you know, the uh the southern the, the southern group the southern wing okay and so very early in the proceedings see richard russell was a lawyer okay uh university of georgia all right and so very early on in the proceedings he understands something is going on he writes a note to himself by the way when we show that in the film we show that note, which is found at the University of Georgia Library in the film. It says something is up here. Warren and Katzenbach know all about what's going on with the FBI. Okay. And I think they're going to try and go ahead and ramrod something through us. Okay. Words of that effect. Okay. 
And because Katzenbach, of course, was from the Department of Justice, Bobby Kennedy decided to wash his hands of the whole Warren Commission business, and Katzenbach was his acting assistant. All right. And so what happens is, and see, this was so misconstrued by some of the early critics, because Russell did not attend very many of the meetings. I think he only attended something like six or seven. It's not because he wasn't interested. It's because he wanted to resign. He actually wrote a letter of resignation very early, but he didn't mail it in. Okay, so he got stuck on this thing. And so what he did, he conducted his own inquiry. All right. He brought in one of his lawyer assistants from Atlanta, uh, a woman named Alfreda Scobie. And she started going ahead and investigating the case on her own. Okay. And this was supposed to be a cross check to what the actual commission was doing. All right. And so you can see this, by the way, we didn't get to put this in the film, but towards the end in late August of 1964, the Southern wing, that is Russell Cooper and Boggs did their own examination of Marina Oswald down in Dallas. None of the Troika was there. Dulles, Ford, McCloy, even Earl Warren didn't show up. Only J. J. Lee Rankin was there. And if you read that, I think it's in volume five, you will see that these guys did not buy Marina Oswald at all, period. Okay? All right. And she, of course, was the prime number one witness for the Warren Commission. Okay, and then after that meeting, after that interview, they walked over to the uh, Texas School Book Depository. Russell walked up with a rifle, okay, an unloaded rifle, and he simulated the shots that Oswald was to have taken. He came back down with a smile on his face, and he says, "Yeah, sure." That was an easy shot. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, did I talk about Carlos Hathcock? Well, was he the guy who was an expert sniper accomplished in Vietnam, and he attempted to do what right. Oswald allegedly did? We talked about that in uh, in, in our interviews about Destiny of the Crave. They haven't okay. recapped that. Oh, Carlos Hathcock was the greatest sniper of the Vietnam era. Okay. He had something like 98 certified kills. He had something like 300 uncertified kills. He had the record for the longest kill shot for 21 years. He hit a guy from a mile and a half away. All right. He went, uh, after he retired from the service, he became a SWAT team instructor. He had his own um, obstacle course, I believe, in Virginia. Craig Roberts was a friend of his. All right. And Craig Roberts had been a sniper also. And so out of curiosity, he writes Carlos Hathcock and he says, what do you think of this one commission thing with this three shots in six seconds at a moving target, you know, on a downward slope? You, 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 you buy this and, and Hathcock goes, <laughs> he says, <laughs> I can't help but laugh when I say this. Craig, I can't tell you how many times we tried it. 
Okay, and we did everything according to the book. We had the elevation. We had the slope. Okay, we had the positions in the cars and everything. We had the speed, et cetera. All right. And I can't tell you how many times we tried. We couldn't do it. You saw this? So I can't help but laugh when I tell that story because here you have one of the greatest marksmen in the world. Okay. And he could not do what the commission said that Oswald did do. And we all know that Oswald was not a very good shot at all. So this the, is another the, thing that makes the case ridiculous. The rifle, too, I've forgotten off the top of my head whether Oswald was right-handed or left-handed, but right. the rifle, was the, the scope was sighted in for a shooter of the opposite hand. Oswald yes. wouldn't have been able to hit anything with that, yes. even if he'd been a really good shot, which he was not. Right. That's, that's, you know, that's hard to believe, but it's also true. But on top of that, the scope was misaligned for whoever was going to use it. Okay. And, and the FBI said, look, we couldn't hit anything with this rifle. Okay. Because it was so misaligned. It was ridiculous. So we had to go ahead and we had to realign the scope because it was high and to the right. You know, every shot we took was high and to the right. All right. So, so look, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to even talk about this. I believe, you know, when you have all this evidence that says, not only did Oswald not kill Kennedy, he couldn't have killed Kennedy. Okay. You know, not with that rifle. Uh, one of the things that, uh, is striking to me about the film, at one point there is a clip of a, a, a snippet of conversation between Richard Russell and LBJ. And what they're talking about is the single bullet theory and the, uh, that both both Russell and LBJ concurred that the same shot that hit Conley had also hit Kennedy. And uh Richard Russell says, I don't believe it. LBJ says, well, I don't either. With that one statement, LBJ is essentially uh contradicting the central evidentiary thesis. Of let, the me, let me expand. Let me expand on that, because I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay. Um what was happening there that night on that conversation, Russell is talking about how he spent all afternoon trying to get his point across at the final Warren Commission executive session meeting. Okay. The reasons he did not believe the single bullet theory. And he based it upon two major things. That was um, the testimony of, of John Conley that he was not hit, okay, by the same bullet and the Zapruder film, all right? And so he thought he got it into the record. Guess what? They sandbagged Richard Russell. They knew that he was going to come loaded for beer to argue a minority point of view. So they faked him out. There was a girl there, okay? who Russell assumed to be the stenographer. But Gerald McKnight in his book, Breach of Trust, found out that the stenography company contract had expired the week before. So in other words, there was no stenographer there. This was done for appearances to ambush 
Richard Russell into thinking that everything he said was going to get into the record. It didn't. None of it. None of it got into the record. Okay? And when Richard Russell found out about this, I believe it was through Harold Weisberg, in, I believe, 1970 or something, he was beside himself. He sent one of his assistants on his senatorial staff to go over and check at the National Archives to see if this was true. Because he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe he'd been stabbed in the back by these guys. All right? And he came back and said, he's telling the truth. There was no stenographic record of that last meeting. And so Russell then, about a year later, I believe, Russell became the first former Warren commissioner to denounce the Warren report in public. Okay? Now, about Lyndon Johnson, you you acknowledge that he agreed with Russell. A few years later, when the information started leaking out about the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro, all right, he commissioned a report by the CIA to investigate this, all right? And the report came in, it was handed to Richard Helms, who was director, and it concluded that, yes, it happened, and there was no presidential approval to any parts of these plots. The CIA initiated them, and the CIA essentially ran them with the help of several, of three mobsters, okay, uh, Giancana, uh, Rosselli, and Traficante, all right? When he read this report, Johnson said to his aide-de-camp or chief of staff, whatever you want to call him, a guy named Marvin Watson, he said, you know something? The CIA was in on the killing of Kennedy. He came to that conclusion after reading those reports. All right. So here you have Richard Russell and, and Lyndon Johnson. Are, geez, Dave, are they tinfoil hat guys? Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but that, of course, you and I both are. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't tar them with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, our, our narcissistic manifestation. Uh, we're kidding, of course, but, uh, it, it, it's worth noting that in the film, you see LBJ making a statement, which when one takes that and places it in its context, it's contradicting, contradicting, excuse me, the evidentiary to the point of the Warren Commission. And uh, we should also know, in, in passing, uh, you mentioned uh, Hale Boggs, who was another, I guess in the movie JFK, he was played by Walter Matthau, was he not? Yeah, uh, yes, I believe that's, no, 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 no. That that was not Hale Boggs. That was Senator Russell Long. Oh, okay. Oh, but, but, but let me say this, since you brought his name up. When when Hale Boggs found out that Hoover had kept dossiers on the Warren Commissioners, okay, of of everything, their private lives, their sex lives, et cetera, all that stuff, he became enraged, okay? And he, um, I believe this is in the book. It didn't make it into the film. And he made a speech. Okay, on the floor of the house, you know, saying words of the effect, we were lied to by J. Edgar Hoover about everything, about the rifle, about the bullets, 
about the autopsy, about everything. Okay. That's how angry he got about what Hoover had done. All right. So there's another one for you. There's another guy from the Warren Commission who was denouncing the Warren report. We should also note that Hale Boggs was killed in the crash of a small plane in Alaska, and it took a long time to, to even find the wreckage. Uh, I, I was struck, too, in the wake of the release of the movie JFK by Oliver Stone back in 1991. Cokie Roberts, the late ABC comic, I think it was ABC, she was the daughter of Hale Boggs. Yeah. And she attacked the movie JFK saying that her father was a Warren commissioner and that he would never have uh, subscribed to a lie when in fact, <laughs> well, and, 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 and not only had he, uh, had the, he had voiced great doubts about what had happened, but not too long after that, he disappeared, uh, in a, plane crash. Worth noting, too, Cookie Roberts now has joined the ancestors, but her son is Anderson Cooper. I don't recall any comments he's made about JFK, but he is still one of the interpreters of sacred truth with a capital S and a capital T. Mm. So he is very much with us. Uh, Jim, in the movie, well, in the documentary, I shouldn't call it a movie, I was not aware that the FBI's analysis of the number of shots and the CIA's analysis of the number of shots and the direction were at variance with what the Warren Commission came up with. Uh, I wonder if you develop that for us. Okay. This is really one of the more interesting parts of this whole story, and very few people know it. I mean, even people who know about this case a lot aren't aware that there's three different versions of the shot sequencing in Dealey Plaza. Okay, now we know the Warren Commission, right? The Warren Commission says that there was one bullet that went through Kennedy and Conley. This is the so-called magic bullet. All right. One bullet missed, hit the curb on Commerce, um, ricocheted upwards, and hit James Tag on the cheek. And then the third bullet is supposed to be the one that blew Kennedy's head off. The FBI didn't buy this. Okay, Hoover insisted that is not what happened. He had all three bullets hitting inside the car. One to Conley, okay, and two in the Kennedy. All right. No James Tag hit. And, and let me, let me make this in very strong terms. The FBI did everything they could to cover up the tag hit. And do you know why they did that? And Harold Weisberg had to fight for years to get the, um, the chemical analysis of the curb that the FBI did. The reason that Hoover did not want to admit the curb shot that hit Tag. Because when the FBI did a chemical analysis, no copper. There was no copper. Now, if you've ever seen a Western Cartridge Company Manneker Carcano bullet, you will see why Hoover did not want to admit this. It's impossible to think that that bullet could have hit that curb and not left 
any copper on it. All right. So that's the second version. But then the third version, which, which we get from people like Dino Brigioni, uh, who was a CI analyst at the National, uh, Photography Institute and also a couple of witnesses that Doug Horn interviewed. They came to the conclusion, okay, that there was actually a shot, okay, that came from the opposite direction because they were doing their analysis by the Zapruder film. And be, and this was before, of course, you got the things like, um, you know, the, uh, neuromuscular reaction and the and the jet effect and shit like that. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. So they concluded that there was a shot from the front. All right. Okay. So he, here you have three official versions of the Kennedy shooting and they all significantly differ from each other. You know, and again, I don't think very many people know this. Okay. But that's the case. I, I, for one, did not know that there was that variance. I, I recall a uh, CIA photographic uh, analyst quoted uh, by Joseph McBride in Into the Nightmare, who described looking at the Zapruder film, said he thought he saw Kennedy reacting to seven or eight shots from at least, his exact words, three different directions. But I was not aware of what is relayed in the movie. And uh, it again suggests the degree of manipulation at the executive level, meaning Warren Commission and and other attendant councils. Uh, And, of course, we should never lose sight of the media who went along with the whole bloody thing. And and I I had never known that until I saw JFK revisited. Uh, One of the things, Jim, we spoke about Joseph Dulce, uh, a skilled uh, World War II uh, battle surgeon, and he was commissioned to shoot Mamluka Carcano rounds into the wrists of cadavers. There were also experiments in which skulls were shot with Mamluka Carcano rounds, and I wonder if you would relate what those found. All right, well, both of those ended up being esculpatory of Oswald. In the first case, Dolce said it's not possible to fire a bullet through bone and it comings out like CE399. And he should know because he's the one who did the experiments for the Warren Commission. The other one was where they fired a rifle at skulls set up to simulate the fatal shot into Kennedy. Every single one of those skulls, A, went forward with the direction of the bullet, and second, just as importantly, had a blown-out right side of the face, which, as we can see with Kennedy, that's not true at all, all right? And so here you have one experiment in which two different things are wrong, both the directionality and the wound pattern, okay? And But that still didn't stop the Warren Commission. <laughs> You you know, you would think we're going through this trail of folly that at least a couple of these guys, you know, be you know, out outside of the commissioners, I'm talking about the lawyers, the twenty four lawyers who served on his staff, that they would say, you know something? I think we're wrong. 
I don't think we should be doing this. I think we should resign. But to my knowledge, that never happened. Well, they uh, knew, let's say, which side their blood was buffered on. We're talking about uh, skulls that were uh, tested by firing rounds from Mandelbrook Arcanos into them. Uh, there were two skull fragments from the actual assassination, one of which I believe has been called the Harper Fragment that was found on the road in Dealey Plaza on 11-23-63. And then there was also a skull fragment in the limousine itself. And the two gentlemen named Mills and Martin Nell were dispatched by Admiral Berkeley, who was JFK's personal physician. I wonder if you would, just terrible pun, uh, we talked about the bones, now we're going to talk about the skulls. <laughs> you know, skulls <laughs> and bones, it, just awful. It just really uh-huh. uh, reminds me of, of, of Nietzsche, a joke is the epigram on the death of a feeling. Um, tell us about the Harper fragment and what happened with Mills, Martinell, and the skull fragment that they retrieved from the limousine. Okay. What happened, the Harper Fragment, there was a young man, Billy Harper, who picked up a fragment from the limousine that was laying on the infield of Dealey Plaza. He naturally assumed it must have been from the shooting. It must have been from Kennedy. And so what he did is his family knew a doctor who was actually a forensic pathologist. All right. So he would know about these things and he brought it to him and he showed it to a couple of other guys and they concluded that this was from the rear of Kennedy's skull. It's what they called an occipital bone. All right. Which of course is down in the, towards the middle or lower. In the back of the head. That Now what makes this so interesting. Is this. This was. A day or two. After the autopsy. So you wonder. How on earth. Could anybody take those pictures. Of an intact back of Kennedy's skull. With that big of a bone missing. Okay, and how could the doctors not note that in their autopsy report? Very, very strange. All right. Now, the other point you're talking about. Berkeley called his assistant, James Young. At the White House and told him he was coming in with Kennedy's body. And he said he was going to need some help. All right. And so. Young reported to the Bethesda morgue and he asked two of his assistants, Mills and Martinell, to go out to the car and check if there were any more bone fragments in the car. Well, they came back with a couple of bone fragments, but they came back with something even more interesting. And this is... This is in the long version of the film. Okay, the four-hour version. And, of course, it's discussed at length in the book, JFK Revisited. Randy Robertson, 
was our authority on this. Randy looked up a interview that James Young did back, I believe, in 2001 or something for the Navy. Okay. And to my knowledge and to Randy's knowledge, this is the first time he ever mentioned this. He said that those guys brought in a bent bullet from the car. And so he, uh, he, he then, Jan Herman, who was recording this, okay, then did another interview with him, which he repeated the story. So then he gets in contact with Gerald Ford and he asks him, did you guys ever talk about a fourth bullet? And Ford says, of course he says no. And you know what, you know who he referred him to? I would refer you to Gerald Posner's book, Case Closed. Okay. But then Young got in contact with Spectre. And Spectre was actually interested in this. All right. If you can believe it. Okay. But somehow or some way, you know, their meeting did not come through. So thanks to Randy Robertson, we know that there was a fourth bullet found that night. God knows where it ended up. I think Randy believes that Berkeley disposed of it. Okay. And this might be the reason. I'm sure you're aware, as we showed in the film. In his first interview about the Kennedy assassination, he was asked, what do you think of this three-bullet scenario? And Berkeley said, I'd rather not comment on that. <laughs> well, it, it'd be, I think the, there was a very telling quote that we spoke about from John Springer, one of the apparent autopsy photographers, and Jeremy Gunn, the counsel for the ARRB, asked him if, if there was any hesitance on his part or others to sign off on something that they knew was not true, which I believe is a felony. And John Stringer noted, well, some people do object, but they don't last very long. Uh, rather like Elmer Moore's statement, I think that is a subtext that is much broader than simply the point of view of one man. And mm-hmm. I think that it really casts the entire situation into a dark and very sinister realm. And I think that in turn, at this distance in time, we can perhaps better understand what was going on, and including the views of people like Elmer Moore and John Springer. Uh, a lot of the people who might have objected didn't last very long, so they may have changed what they had to say. Yes, Oh, one thing I, I was struck by too. You were talking. We were talking about Elmer <clears throat> Moore and his pressuring of Malcolm Perry. Uh, something that is discussed in the movie. Am I remembering the name Donald Miller right, or am, am I misremembering the name? But there was a, a another physician who had worked with Malcolm Perry at a hospital in the Pacific Northwest, I believe, somewhere in Washington State. And Malcolm Perry generally said, 
what he had eventually adopted, which is that the, uh, uh, the wound in Kennedy's throat, we'll call it Malcolm Perry was the guy who did the tracheotomy, uh, could have been an exit wound. But then one night after a lengthy operation, they were drinking coffee in the physician's lounge or in the surgeon's lounge, and Malcolm Perry finally came clean, uh, developed that for us, if you would, Jim. Yes, that, that, that was one of the most interesting stories I believe that we have in the film. Donald Miller, who was a surgeon working for uh, a hospital, a big hospital, in, I think the University of Washington, that, that hospital, which he's an, uh, he's an emeritus doctor there now. He's retired. Um, he was very interested in the Kennedy assassination. He tried to get Perry to talk to him about it when Perry decided to go up there and work for a couple of years. All right. But Malcolm would always, you know, no, I, 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 then one night after they had both been working on a very complex piece of surgery for hours. Okay. And they retired to the uh, lounge. They were drinking coffee. And Don said, I didn't even ask him. All right. But Perry knew he was interested. And he said, it was an entrance wound. There wasn't any doubt. It was an entrance wound. And Donald said that, and he told me and Oliver Stone this, that he felt that that was given to him in confidence. Because it was just me and he said it was just me and him. Okay. And so he never talked about it till after Malcolm Perry died, but he did write about it after his death. And when I read that, I said, Oh, we got to get this guy on camera. Okay. You know, and so, um, and by the way, I, Miller was a very interesting subject because he also knew Berkeley's son. Okay. And. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knew Berkeley's son. They lived together in a vacation home during the summer. Okay. And he said to Donald that, you know, it always bothered my father that he was never interviewed by the Warren Commission. And Miller said to us, well, it's pretty obvious why he wasn't interviewed by the Warren Commission because his death certificate screwed everything up because Berkeley put the back wound at about four inches below the collar okay in in his death certificate at what they call t3 all right and then he signed the autopsy face sheet which also put the back wound at that very same place although in the warren commission they didn't print that one they erased his name but in the original berkeley's name is on it and miller said to us that's why Spectre didn't interview Berkeley because he would have had to explain both those things. And, you know, obviously Arlen didn't want to go there. You know, and that might be another thing that Berkeley's talking about when he said that I prefer not to discuss that scenario. And by the way, I, you, since you've seen the film and you've read the book, you know that Berkeley did that more than once. He did that two other times. He hinted like he wanted to talk, but then backed out at the last minute. And then when the ARB tried to get his files, and I'm sure you remember this because Doug Horn talks about it, they wanted to get his files from his law firm, okay? And his daughter originally signed off on it. She said, fine, I'll be glad to sign off on it because he had passed away, okay? Then 
when the day comes when the, they're going to send the order up to the law firm, what happens? She backs out at the last minute, won't sign the order. Dave, well, again, I think Dave, the, the yeah, you're right. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, <laughs> somebody got to her, obviously. Okay. There really is, I think, in addition to the obvious point-by-point, uh, point, hands-on cover-up of what happened to JFK, I think there is a much larger and, again, altogether sinister truth that emerges about what happens when the official version of events cannot be disputed. And Admiral Berkeley, we should remember, was JFK's personal physician. So if anyone should have been consulted in the position of being an expert witness, my God, JFK's personal physician, and mm. yet, obviously, people who object don't last very long. Let me add one more point about Berkeley. He oh, was, we have about three minutes left. Oh, so okay, okay. Gotta, gotta Very quickly, quick. he was the only doctor at both Parkland and Bethesda. He was at both places. Uh, one of the things we're going to pick up with Dr. Gary Aguilar is the number of Parkland witnesses whose recollections and testimony fundamentally contradict what uh, came out of Bethesda. And also we should uh, keep in mind that and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, in our next talk as well. Uh, the limousine itself uh, was uh, reworked in the immediate aftermath of the assassination. And uh, that, once again, is uh, very interesting in terms of the disfavor that was handed down to us. Uh, Jim. Black Op Radio, kennedysandking.com, and where can people get the documentary and the book? Okay. Kennedysandking.com is the website, which I'm the editor and publisher of. Reviews, articles, okay, essays, etc. I'm a semi-regular on Leno Sanex Black Op Radio show out of Vancouver. The DVD um, you can get from Amazon. Okay, and I think there's a couple other places that you that carry it also. But if you can believe it, after all these months, we're still in the top 20 for documentaries. And the book you can get from Barnes & Noble, um, Abbey Books, and Amazon. It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. You have both screenplays, and you have about 200 pages of excerpts from interviews that did not make it into the film. It's very much worthwhile you're reading that book. Indeed. And I think, uh, as I've indicated, the film and the book express a larger concept that riddles our society, which is the big lie. And I'll, I'll leave it at that because maybe we'll pick this up uh, in one of our future uh, interviews. However, we are all out of time. Uh, this concludes for the record program number 1272, interview number 11 with Jim DiGemio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on November 16th of the year 2022. For Jim DiGemio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.